And this is Paul speaking here and he's saying these words, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool here, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abram's descendants? That's me. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concerns for the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, and I will boast, of the things that show my weakness... The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus and the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these unsurpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, as Chris said, we're almost at the end of uh, our series on Corinthians. Dan Peterson's going to be preaching uh, next Sunday, which is exciting. And then after that, we'll finish off 2 Corinthians and head on uh, into a series about uh, salvation, some of the, uh, the big words uh, that describe our salvation. Well, 2 Corinthians is a book of contrast, as you uh, may well know by now. Sorrow and comfort... Grief and forgiveness, poverty and wealth, life and death. There's contrasts woven all the way through the book of 2 Corinthians, but I think that the contrast that Paul brings up here, the paradox that Paul brings up here, is probably the most counterintuitive of them all. That is weakness and strength. It's counterintuitive because we hate weakness. There are a few things I think more frustrating in life than to be weak. You only need to look at uh, older people uh, as they age and the frustration that they find in being unable to do the things that they used to be able to do. A jar which they can't open, a door that they can't open, a tap that they can't turn on or turn off. Stairs that they can't walk up and down. We watch the Commonwealth Games and we admire strength and agility and endurance. And we mock people who are soft and who can't make the grade and who give up. In our age, weakness is awful and power is great. And that's not just our age, is it? That's that's been true through all of history. That weakness is awful and power is great. But here in this passage, God turns our world upside down, as so often he does, and says that even though the currency of our age might be power, not weakness, God says that his currency is in fact weakness and not power. The Corinthians were like us, people who loved power and hated weakness. And Paul had established their church, he planted their church, but now some other people had come in and they were undermining his ministry. And they were boasting about themselves and they were saying that they had these amazing ministries and that Paul was a bit of a flop, a bit of a failure. He was weak. They were calling Paul a fool and so Paul decides to kind of play along for a bit and say, well, if you're going to call me a fool, I'll play the fool. You want to call me weak? Well, I'll tell you about my weaknesses. He says, if you want me to boast, I'll boast not about my strengths, not about what I can do, but about the things that afflict me. 
Five times he's been flogged with 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day on the open sea. He's gone without sleep, gone without food, gone without clothes. He faces daily anxiety for all the churches that he's planted. His ministry sounds like a disaster zone. Let's not forget that this is the same Paul who contributed the most significant portions of the New Testament, established a huge number of churches, and you read this passage and think, his ministry sounds like it's hanging by a thread, and that it could collapse at any moment. If that's not enough, Paul says, like everybody else, he struggles against sin and temptation. He's not some kind of superhuman, super spiritual being where he's kind of moved beyond uh, sin and temptation. There's a great story, uh, you might have heard it, of a man who stood up once. He believed in what's called entire sanctification, that you can kind of reach a point in life where you you don't face sin anymore. This was at a minister's conference uh, and... A Spurgeon was there and he was quite intrigued by that remark. And the next morning at breakfast, uh, Spurgeon came up behind him and poured a uh, jug of milk over this guy's head. Uh, and the things that came out of his mouth, uh, I think, demonstrated that he had not perhaps reached the level of sanctification, the level of holiness that he might have imagined that he had. Paul says, I'm not at this kind of superhuman level of, of being holy and and holier than everyone else. Now I'm just weak like the rest of you. He says, if I boast in anything, I'll boast in the things that show my weaknesses. It's not that he didn't have anything to boast about. At the beginning of chapter 12, he goes on to talk about this person who's had these incredible experiences, a person who was caught up to the third heaven, which seems a bit strange, but I But it it seems that probably the background to that is that uh, in ancient times and in the Bible, people talked about, used the word heaven to talk about three different things. So the birds fly in the heavens, the stars are in the heavens, kind of another heavens, and God, heaven is the place where God is and where God rules from. So what Paul is saying is he's caught up to the place where God was, whether in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know. He just knows that it was inexpressible and glorious. And it becomes clear that while at the beginning Paul is sort of distancing himself from this person, I know a man to whom this happened. At the end it's clear that this is Paul's experience, an experience which he had and which he had kept secret. And it's only now, pushed to the wall, that he says anything about it. Why is that? Why would he not say? Wouldn't it have glorified God to say, look, I've I've seen God. In In verse 6 of chapter 12 he says, But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than what is warranted by what I do or say. He doesn't boast in these extraordinary experiences so that people won't think too highly of him. 
Instead, he chooses to boast in the things that show his weakness. So countercultural, isn't it? Who writes an autobiography and says, well, this is all the terrible things that have happened to me. These are all the things that I couldn't cope with. I've always thought it was so strange that there are so many books published by people who've experienced visions of God. Go into a Christian bookshop and they're the the bestsellers. People who've had heavenly experiences. And here's the Apostle Paul who had an experience, a legitimate experience we might say, and he chooses not to say anything about it. In fact, what did he say about it? He saw things he was not permitted to tell. He resolves to boast in weakness so that no one would think too much of him. Well, it's great to stop and ask ourselves, isn't it, what we boast in? What do you boast in? You might boast in your achievements, uh, your exam results, school results, university, your sporting achievements, your gifts, talents, your abilities, how quickly you can learn new things, pick things up, how many different skills you have. There's nothing that's kind of beyond your mastery. You might boast in your successes, business successes. Perhaps you just boast silently. It's kind of unseemly, isn't it, to boast too overtly. And so you just boast in your own head. And so as you listen to people, you think to yourself, well, I'm better than that. I can do better than that. I'm not going to say anything because I'm too pious for that, but I know that I'm better than they are. Maybe you don't even listen to what people say because you're so busy boasting in your own head. Perhaps like Paul, you boast in your weakness. Or maybe it just looks like you're boasting in your weakness. But deep down, what you're really trying to do is milk the compliments out of people. You know what buttons to push. I'm no good at that. I'm so, I'm so terrible. No, you're not. You're really good at that. It's not really boasting in weakness, is it? What that is, is getting other people to boast for you kind of entrapping, in, entrapping them into your kind of insecurities and your pride. You might not be so tactless as to boast in public, but the online world opens up new horizons and new possibilities for boasting. The great thing about the online world is you can boast... And it's kind of the norm. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a social faux pas. You know, kind of to, to put up a record of your achievements is kind of what people expect of you to do. There's this wonderful article uh, 
titled The The Plastic Fruit of Online Living. Plastic fruit is in, you know, the beautiful fruit that you put on your table uh, because it's better than real fruit. The Plastic Fruit of Online Living by Lindsay Carlson. She writes about the online Jill. She says, Online Jill is a joyful and encouraging believer. She advocates for the oppressed and raises money for the poor. Every Saturday she tweets about her service at the local homeless shelter. She posts Bible verses several times a day based on her social media interactions. Sorry, based on her social media interactions, her friends seem to love and enjoy her. Offline, she's a different Jill. Offline, Jill seems standoffish and unengaged with her church community. Her online activism feels more like judgmentalism. And while happy to volunteer at a shelter, she can't be bothered to serve her local church. Hurt by her apparent disinterest, Jill's peers feel ignored and pushed away. She seems more content to live online than face-to-face. You see, our online personas can be carefully crafted, can't they? To show only the things that we want to show that betray us in the best light. We're like museum pieces carefully sculpted and put in a display cabinet for people to admire us. Equally telling, I think, is an article from the Sydney Morning Herald about a year ago about the rise of the gym selfie. That is, you know, you go to the gym and you take a photo of yourself, you've just worked out. It's taking the internet by storm, apparently. People put up these photos of their carefully sculpted bodies or we could add carefully sculpted anything, crafts, cakes, uh, whatever it might be. And the writer uh, of the article says, when we take a photo of ourselves and post it on social media, we're trying to communicate a specific message. In the case of the gym selfie, the pursuit of health is seen as something to be revered in society. Fitness and health, health have moral meanings attached People who pursue health and fitness are are viewed as being disciplined, motivated, controlled and valued members of society. Isn't that interesting? One photo, and there's the message. A smug gym selfie doubles as a visual brag, the writer says. People who only eat egg white omelettes and pretend they like the taste of kale in post-gym smoothies (laughs) want the social media world to know... And here it is, they want the social media world to know that they are strong and the rest of us who sleep in on drizzly mornings are weak. It's so subtle, isn't it? And the online world just exposes what's been there all along and gives us the forum to do what we so desperately want to do and that is to boast in our strength and glorify ourselves. And Paul says, if I boast in anything, I'll boast in my weaknesses so that no one would think more of me than by what I do or say. Well, Paul doesn't only boast in his weakness. He goes on to say that actually... Weakness is part of God's plan for Christian life and Christian ministry. So in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. God gave Paul this thorn, this obstacle, this trial to keep him humble. He never says what that was, but there's been plenty of speculation and you can read uh, books you know, of people who've speculated what Paul's thorn might be. Uh, generally, it falls into two categories. There are physical afflictions, epilepsy, a speech impediment, malaria, an eye problem. That's kind of one of my top choices. Leprosy, migraines, hysteria, periodic depressions. And there's also spiritual afflictions, persecution, a difficult person. So in the Old Testament, often difficult people are called thorns in people's sides. Persecution, difficult people, temptations. But the truth is we don't know. We have no idea what it could be. It could be any of those things. It could be all of them. Paul never says what it was. He just says that it was a messenger of Satan and that it was also part of God's plan. What Satan intended for Paul, Paul's misfortune, what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. Three times Paul asked God to take it away. And every time God said that he wouldn't do it. Why is that? Why afflict one of your most valuable gospel ministers? Paul says the reason was to keep him from becoming conceited, or in the language of verse 9, to teach Paul that God's grace is sufficient. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. I think what Paul means by conceited is that he would begin to think that his power, his abilities were sufficient. When what's sufficient is God's grace. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. It was to teach Paul that it's not health and well-being and personal success and personal power is not those things that are sufficient for life and ministry. It's God's grace and God's power. So often it's the case, I think, in the Christian life that in God's wisdom, as for Paul, great experiences or great blessings are matched by great weakness. In God's wisdom, great experiences and great blessings are matched by great weakness. So God blesses our work, but we suffer. People are converted through the words that we speak to them, but we're cast down with a bout of interminable depression. It was true of some of the great saints in the history of the church that when they were most afflicted, they were most used by God. It's instructive. I don't know how many of you love reading uh, biographies from the past, but it's instructive to read them because these people's lives were miserable. Actually, you read about the life of John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield and people like that, and their lives were horrible. Uh, Bunyan, you know, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote it in prison. 
Richard Baxter was a Puritan minister in uh, England, I think it was in the 17th century, and he was a man afflicted by the most astonishing list of ailments. It's amazing he ever did anything, ever achieved anything in his life. He was so uh, disturbed by his uh, bodily afflictions. And yet as he reflected on the pain and the misery of his life, on his great suffering, he realised that it was actually those sufferings which had made him useful. So he could write about his sufferings that they were so great as made me live and preach in some continual expectation of death, supposing still that I had not long to live. And this I found through all my life to be an invaluable mercy for me. (laughs) I lived on the edge of death and it was an invaluable mercy. Why, he says, first, because it greatly weakened temptations. Second, it kept me in a great contempt of the world. Third, it taught me to highly, highly to esteem time, so that if any of it passed away in idleness or unprofitableness, it was so long a pain and burden to my mind. And last of all, it made me study and preach things necessary, and a little stirred up my sluggish heart to speak to sinners with some compassion as a dying man to dying men. Baxter knew terrible suffering, just the ongoing burden of weakness. But he also knew that it was in his weakness that God's power was perfected. It's not simply that weakness is not an obstacle to strength. That's not what Paul's saying. And that God can kind of overcome that, kind of push through it and get to the other side. That's not what that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that it's in weakness, it's through weakness that God's power is made perfect. Think of the cross. It wasn't just that Jesus overcame death and crucifixion and kind of pushed through and won out on the other side. It was through the cross. It was through death. It was through crucifixion. They were the means that God used to achieve the greatest victory in the history of the world. The most supreme act of God's power in the history of the world was not in spite of weakness, but because of it. Sometimes I sit back and I think about what's going on in our church and I think to myself that our church is, like Paul's ministry, hanging by a thread. Sometimes it feels as if a gust of wind might just sort of tip everything over and kind of everything will just fall apart in a moment. We've been praying at the same time that God would build his church, that he would build this church, and the most remarkable thing is that God has been doing that. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, I don't get it. I don't get why God is answering that prayer, and yet the church seems to be hanging by a thread. How do those two things go together? See, because I think that a growing church is a strong church. And I thought to myself, Carl, you're such an idiot. So, you know, like disciples on the road to Emmaus, so slow of heart to believe 
isn't it? Because actually weakness isn't an obstacle to God's power. But actually weakness is the means by which God achieves his glory and the salvation of his people. So often it's true that the greater the blessing, the greater the weakness. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Well, Paul resolves to boast in his weakness. He tells us that weakness is part of God's plan. And last of all, he resolves that weakness will be the shape of his life and ministry. He resolves, if you like, to revel and to delight in weakness. Verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He doesn't just accept, you see, the weakness. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, well, this is the cross I'm going to have to bear. He says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses because it's in my weakness that God's power is most evident. I want people to know my weakness so that people would know the power of God, so that they would know this isn't me, but it's God who's at work. I think the great danger that we face is that we want so desperately to hide our weakness under a bushel. But actually, without evident weakness, no one will ever see the power of God. We'll confuse God's power for human power. It's not that we need to go around uh, kind of moping around and uh, every time someone says, how are you going? We kind of launch into a 20-minute unpacking of our great misery. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's saying at the same time, both, I'm weak and God's powerful. Our weakness, on account of our weakness without God's power, is depressing. And just talking about God's power without mentioning our weakness is liable to mislead people into thinking that actually we're the great power rather than God. We strive for strength We strive to hide our weakness. Paul strives to make his weakness known so that people would know the power of God. We strive for glory. Paul strives for the glory of Christ. We boast in ourselves and promote our strengths and glory in our strengths. We exalt our general awesomeness. And in doing that, we rob God of his glory. And we overshadow Christ. And what a terrible sin that is, to overshadow the glory of Christ. And what's true at an individual level is also true at a church level. So just like people have selfies which rob Jesus of his glory, I think churches have selfies which rob Jesus of his glory. Churches manicure their reputation to put their best foot forward. It's tempting to want people to think, I'd love to go to the branch because it's a powerful church. You know, when we make make websites which 
talk about our great power and how attractive we are as a ministry. How much better it would be for people to say, well, they're barely holding it together down there at the branch in Kings Meadows. They've barely got it together, but I tell you what, boy, is God working through them. I have to say, it almost makes me sick sometimes when I look at the way that churches in the West have begun to market themselves. Paul says, it's not like that. I'm not going to boast in my strength. I'll boast in the weakness of God. And I won't just boast. I'll delight in it. Did you see that? That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? Because the power and the glory of God is on display when my weaknesses are on display. Well, what a great test, isn't it, of our dependence on Jesus and our desire for Jesus to be glorified. If when weakness and trial and hardships comes, we, we say to ourselves, well, praise the Lord, because people will finally see the power of God. Instead, so often, it's weakness and trials and hardships and sicknesses and difficulties which frustrate us because they expose our weakness. They expose our weakness to ourselves and we don't like that and they expose our weaknesses to others and we don't like that either. But Paul says, if God's power is displayed in my weakness, then bring it on. Let everybody know because I want people to see the glory of God in the paradox of the gospel. The great paradox of the gospel is that the Son of God took on our human frailty to glorify God and that the Son of God died, was crucified, was buried in the most extraordinary act of God's power. And when God's power is manifest in our weakness, our lives reflect God's gospel power in Jesus Christ. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, says Paul, so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel, that your wisdom turns upside down the wisdom of the world. And Lord, we delight in that most especially because the truth is that we are desperately weak people. And Lord, our weakness is on display day after day.
It grates against us. It wears us out. And sometimes we don't know if we have the strength to go on. And the truth is, of course, that we don't. And yet in our folly so often we look inside ourselves rather than looking to you and to your great power. And so, Lord, we thank you and we fling ourselves at your feet and plead that in and through our weakness, your power would be made manifest. Lord, we pray that the power of the cross, which turned the darkest day of human history, into your most awesome accomplishment. We pray that that same power, that same paradox, would be at work in our lives and in our church. Oh Lord, we pray that we would never boast except in Jesus Christ. That we would never rob you of your glory And seek it for ourselves. All praise and honour and glory be to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.